Your what? Yeah, yeah, you, I could, I, I could, you know. Yeah, they're moving. Yeah, I always get hence a hard time. I've only known him for, yeah. We started, we start, we met when I was nine and he was 19. I think I was eight and he was 18, something like that. So. Reverend Hans. All right. Reason I would, one of the reasons, you need to crawl the rest of the way for your sin. <laughs> um, Jim has gotten word of some things that are going on in Ukraine. Before he comes up, I was in contact with, with um, Eager. And Igor said that they were bombing, the Russians were bombing Zhitomer, where he lives, and that they are 14 miles from, from Zhitomer, which is about 90 miles from um, uh, Kiev, to the west of, of Kiev. So I'm going to let Jim come up and give his little update. Thank you for praying for us. I know so many have said we've been praying for you. Don't stop praying for Ukraine. Please, uh, I could stand up here and preach. I guess I won't. <laughs> Listen, uh, I just had a Bible class with our church in Kiev. Uh, we had 50, 60 people online. Uh, tremendous blessing. Uh, these people are still hungry for the word. But I live in a village about 20 miles from the city center. Tiny village. I don't know, it might be 300 people live in that village. Uh, Pastor Oleg uh, lives in our house. He lives on the second uh, floor. <clears throat> and his family has been staying in this house in the village. And things have been quiet until I got online uh, about two hours ago. And he said, the Russians have come into the village. So I don't know what they're doing there. There's nothing there of any value to <laughs> militarily. I don't know why they're there. But the Russians are now um, in, the, in the village. And Oleg is there with his uh, extended family, which includes uh, two sisters and a brother, spouses, and their children. And uh, so I would ask that you just take a moment even now uh, and, and ask for the Lord's protection that he'll watch over and, and keep those people safe. Oleg has done a tremendous job as pastor, and he continues to do that in spite of all that's, that's going on right now. So uh, don't stop praying, please. These are dear people. They love the Lord. Staying in your house downstairs. Thirteen. Thirteen. Okay. So we need to pray for them. We need to pray for Eager. We need to pray for everybody. Um, Rachel, raise your hand or stand up. Rachel was a, was a kid when her parents, Mark Musser and Karen, were, were in, in Kiev, and she's in contact with lots of the people, especially kids she grew up with that are her age, and we were just at lunch, and she was uh, telling me a lot of the things a lot of people have gotten out. A lot of people have gone to Poland, and they've, then from Poland they've gone to uh, 
they've gone to Eastern Germany or they've gone to Czechoslovakia or they've gone down to Italy or they've gone to some of these other countries. But you've just, it's, it's just scattered. It's like the scattering in, of the Christians in Jerusalem in Acts 8. They're just going everywhere. And it just, on the one hand, your heart just breaks for these people because uh, their lives have been totally, in one perspective, their lives have been totally shattered. Everything that they hoped for, dreamed for, everything they were preparing their children for, everything is gone. It, it, it's like the South at the end of the war between the states. It's gone with the wind. And the destruction is monumental in these people's lives. And yet their love for the Lord has just increased so incredibly. And everywhere they go, they're giving the gospel. They're sharing the good news of eternal life by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And they are telling people about the Bible and teaching them everywhere they go. And they've just been scattered, and they're taking the word everywhere. And that is just something that is just a a phenomenal example to us and a tremendous encouragement, as well as just demonstrating the fruit of, of Jim's ministry there for the last 25 years. But we need to pray for these people. So as we prepare for our afternoon, let's uh, just take a little time uh, so that if necessary, you need to confess sin, prepare yourself for our time this afternoon, and then I will, I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father, as we think about what is going on in Ukraine, we have we have heavy hearts because for many of us this is this is very personal because we know people, we've walked those streets, we've been in those homes, we have eaten in the restaurants, gone to the grocery stores, we've lived there. And to think of what is happening is just horrific. But we know this is in your permissive will, and you're allowing this, and we never comprehend all of the reasons or the everything. All we know is Romans 8.28, that all things work together for good. That doesn't mean all things are good, but that you are working them together for good. And, Father, we know that you have a plan and a purpose, and part of this is the scattering of these these gospel bearers who are taking the truth of the gospel to so many places, to bomb shelters, to to different refugee centers, and to uh, different new homes, relatives in Poland and eastern Germany and, Czech, and Slovakia and the Czech Republic and Romania, and uh, being a tremendous uh, witness with their lives and with their lips, and we just pray for them. We pray for Oleg and his family, the others from the church who have taken shelter at Jim's house in Rozhevka. And, Father, we pray that you would just protect them, watch over them. With the, Now that this, there's a Russian presence in the village, we pray for your mercy upon them and that you will just uh, uh, protect them, protect this house. We pray for Eager and for Daniel in Shatomer and the decisions they have to make about whether they're going to stay or go and where to go and how to how to protect themselves and how to uh, where their priorities should be in terms of ministry and other things we pray for them and that you would guide and direct them and give him wisdom and father we pray for so many others uh the you know Victor Munko comes to mind and many of the others that that, that you know all of their names 
And, Father, we just pray that you would strengthen them, that you would encourage them, and then they would be a a real light in the midst of this extremely dark time in their history. Father, we pray, too, that there are many that we would find, discover ways to help them in terms of getting financial help to, to many of them, and that's not always easy. And, Father, we pray that you would enlighten us into ways in which we can do that. So, Lord, we pray for all of these people and for their peace and their stability and wherever you take them. And even if they will not survive, you're going to bring them home. We know that they will glorify you in whatever they do. And we pray this. And for us now, as we study, that we can shift gears, focus on the word, learning the word this afternoon with Jeremy and myself, and that we might be able to focus on the fact that we need to be uh, focus more than ever. We see the significance in a very real way of our own spiritual growth and internalizing the word. As David said, thy word have I hid in my heart that I may not sin against thee. And so, Father, we pray that we would just redouble, retriple our efforts to know you, to know your word, to walk more closely with you, that we might glorify you and be faithful witnesses in our world. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, our next speaker is uh, Jeremy Thomas. Jeremy went to Texas Tech, and then he went to Tyndale Theological Seminary, and for many years he was a pastor teacher at Fredericksburg Bible Church. And one of the great memories I have of Jeremy, Jeremy, where'd you go? Where are you sitting? Oh, you're hiding on my left side. Um, is when you and Dan Ingram and I were driving around in the hill country about 20 years ago talking theology. That was one of the greatest memories I have, just this super time. And so Jeremy and I, five years ago, did a a joint paper. He did the first part of uh, Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, and I did the second part because the Olivet Discourse among dispensationalists, I'm talking about all the good guys from Tommy to Arnold Fruchtenbaum to Stan Toussaint, Dwight Pentecost, John Wahlberg, Charles Ryrie, none of them agree with each other. <laughs> you know, and I've gone to a couple of, a couple of things where a couple of different passages in this last year that are very complicated and difficult, and you realize, you know, you always have your go-to guys. The little secret we all have is, well, if I can't understand this, I'll go to Walbert or Ryrie or Theme or somebody, and they're going to have it right. And none of them agree with each other. What in the world are we going to do about this? Well, we have to know the original languages. We have to truly, not just at a first or second year level, but at a, at, at a four-year level and beyond, we have to be able to do the original, the, the work in the original languages. Because, and we have to really know the scriptures backwards and forwards because it involves lots of intricate connections with a lot of other passages. And we have to understand uh, the ramifications of the different views among different dif- dispensationalists. And so we took on this task, and uh, Jeremy does the first part of Matthew 24, and then I'm going to come along and deal with the second part. So, Jeremy, w- come on up and. Hmm? Oh, yeah, we're going to sing.
going to leave, Louis. I, oh, I, I couldn't read it. I hate having this rainbow color. I have missed so many things. It doesn't print where it's that clear. Okay, just whoever printed this. Um, I have missed announcements I'm supposed to make and everything else because it disappears. Okay, we're going to sing a great hymn. Martin Luther wrote this. He wrote the music. It's not a bar hymn, a bar song, which is what the fake news is. He wrote the music and he wrote the words. It is a mighty fortress is our God. Let's stand and sing. And then Jeremy will come up. It's uh, 26.
failed to mention is he is now pastor of Spokane Bible Church in Spokane, Washington. All right, well, it's really nice to be with you this afternoon and to teach our Lord's greatest prophetic discourse, Matthew 24. Uh, you, You can't say it's his greatest discourse, right, because they're all great. But you can say greatest prophetic, perhaps. I don't know, maybe Matthew 13 gives it a good run for its money. Lots of prophecy there. I remember listening to Lewis Berry Chafer and uh, listening to him teach this. I didn't listen in 1947, but I listened to what he taught on it in 1947 and uh, was humbled as I listened to him begin with the words of Matthew 23:37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Oh, how I wanted to gather you as a hen gathers uh, her chicks under her wing, but you were not willing. And um, setting the stage for it in his older years, just a few years before he passed away. And um, again, like Robbie said, now I have to disagree with Schaefer on the passage, but, you know, you end up disagreeing with almost everyone, right? So uh, we do our best. My only prayer is, of course, that I would say what the Lord said. That's what I'm interested in. So we're going to try to do that today. Um, I think the best way to go about this, because the paper's way too long, I tried this at the pre-trib conference a few years ago and ran out of time and left questions for no one. Uh, if that happens, then Robbie will cover everything else and answer any questions you might have. Um, but no, what I'm going to do is I'm not really going to read my paper or anything. I'm just going to go through a PowerPoint presentation related to it. And the best thing for you to do probably to follow along is have your Bible open. That's always the best thing. And um, I encourage people to take notes in their Bible. Because I know we have all these notebooks on books that we've taken notes on, and then what ends up with those notebooks, but we don't have them when we need them when we're sitting in the pulpit at church, sitting in the pew at church. So if you take little notes here and there in your Bible, it'll stimulate thoughts and remembrances, and things will come back, and you'll remember uh, what you've learned about that passage. So that's just my encouragement and the technique I usually tell people uh, to follow. Thanks, Eddie. Appreciate that. Let there be light. What do I do now? I don't know. You tell me. It says I'm connected here on my iPad. Oh, is it just just these projectors? Okay, so the paper is basically going to cover two or three things. First of all, I'm going to give an overview of the various views among dispensationalists of the Olivet Discourse. I'm going to focus really on verses 4 to 14, but we'll take some steps and look at the actual sign down in verse 29 and 30. The other thing I like to do is give an overall contextual understanding of the Gospel of Matthew. And in that, I like to discuss very, very briefly the five discourses around which the book is organized. And then we'll go into Matthew 23, 37 and show how the passage develops its thoughts, what the questions are that the disciples asked, how our Lord addresses those questions, And in a part of that, I'll be setting up for Robbie's uh, follow-up. So in the midst of that, you'll see some discussion about, is it two questions they're asking? Is it three questions? What big difference does it make? And so we'll go from there. Okay? All right. I hope you have fun. It's going to be a blitz. took me 40 minutes to do this last night when I went over it. So that should leave plenty of time for questions if it goes that fast. Um, First of all, are any signs of Christ coming in Matthew 24, 1 to 31? That is a loaded question. If you think about it, you can ask yourself, well, which coming are you talking about? (laughs) 
Are you talking about the rapture or are you talking about the second coming? Well, I did this on purpose. Okay. So um, it's meant to be ambiguous. So let's have fun sorting through it together. Okay. Um, so again, two, there's basically two categories of views among dispensationalists of Matthew 24, 4 to 14. These are the verses I'll center on. The first view is basically what we call a historical futurist view. If you remember what Tommy taught yesterday, he said you've got basically four views of the timing. Preterism, past, historicism, these things are fulfilled throughout church history. Futurism, obvious future. And then timeless or idealism, which apparently is the number one view now. Sad but true. Um, The first view here is a blend then. It's a blend of historicism and futurism, meaning that some of chapter 24, verses 4 to 14 is being viewed as fulfilled historically during the present church age. Other parts are seen as having fulfillment in the future 70th week of Daniel. The second category of view is strict futurism, and obviously it means that these scholars think that all of chapter 24, 4 to 14 is fulfilled during the 70th week only, okay? So now I'm going to look at some of these views. I've, I've named these views, so it's not a technical name. But first of all, the gap view, and you see Darby and Toussaint, at least Toussaint in his earlier part of his career, um, both saw a gap in Matthew 24. So you see Darby saw verses 4 to 14 as being fulfilled or taking place from the year 30 to 70 A.D. And then he saw a gap in the discourse, And beginning in verse 15 to 26, he saw the rest of it fulfilled in connection with the abomination of desolation and following. So basically, Darby was looking at everything from the standpoint of Israel and Jerusalem and the temple, which remained standing until 70 AD. And any time the testimony or gospel of the kingdom was being proclaimed, he believed that the discourse was applicable. So early, from 30 to 70 AD, and then a gap, and later. Uh, Toussaint had a gap view too, but you can see it's divided differently. He saw the gap between verse 6 and verse 7. And they both agreed that 15 through 26 deals with the latter part of the 70th week. Just some weaknesses perhaps of the gap view. Verses 4 and 5 there talk about false Christ coming, but there were no false Christ between AD 30 and 70 that we know of. Uh, Tommy I said, we possess no historical record of any false messiahs having appeared previous to the destruction of Jerusalem. So from 30 or 33 A.D. until 70 A.D. Secondly, in this view, the birth pangs are not adequately dealt with because when do birth pangs occur? I don't know, any women want to volunteer, you know? Um, the last, you know, 24 hours or so of a pregnancy is when your birth pangs begin. But if you put some of these verses that are birth pangs, like verses 4, 5, and 6, and 7, uh, in the first century, that's a long time ago for the birth pangs to have begun. So this view doesn't really deal with the birth pangs uh, sufficiently because the birth pangs only occur at the very end, just before new life is to begin in the kingdom. Also, a gap is contrary to the illustration of the fig tree. The fig tree is mentioned in verses 32 to 34, Jesus uses it as an illustration, right? When you see the fig tree blossoming, you know it's the time is near. 
And he likens his coming as the son of man to that. So everything in chapter 24 are things that would happen within the same season in which a fig tree would bud and bear its fruit. And so this view, having things early and then having things late, makes a break in the season. So it doesn't fit well with the illustration of the fig tree. The second set of historical futurist views are what I call general and specific. You can see Schofield and Walford both held to this view. And what this means basically is that there is a double interpretation, okay, a general interpretation of these verses in which the events are describing things throughout the church age that is intensify as the end nears. Uh, Schofield even admitted that this was a double interpretation. So there are wars and rumors of wars for the church age, but those wars and rumors of wars also refer to wars and rumors of wars in the tribulation time. A double interpretation. Here's some weaknesses of the general and specific view. Number one, it's a double interpretation, right? Um, interpretation is one. Application is many, right? But we can't have multiple interpretations of a single text. Every text has authorial intent. And whatever that author meant under, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is the meaning, but not multiple meanings. So you can't have double interpretation. Secondly, again, birth pangs are not adequately dealt with because if you've got birth pangs in general and then you've got them specifically, well, that doesn't fit birth pangs. Birth pangs only occur at the very end and they escalate and get closer in time until new life is born. So that only fits very close to the second coming in the kingdom when new life is here. And again, it's contrary to the illustration of the fig tree because the fig tree shows that all these things must happen in one season. And you can't say that the whole church age is just one season. It just doesn't work. The third view is in the historical futurist category. It's like a chronological, historic, and future. And you can see quite a bit of variation here. But in in one sense, they're very similar. Um, Meaning... Well, you see Chafer, you see Dr. David L. Cooper and Arnold Fruchtenbaum, our lovely token Jew that we love to have here with us. Uh, it seems like everywhere I go I have to talk, you know, and have a view that's a little different than Arnold. But um, we all love Arnold, and you know the, the important things. We are all in the same school, right? We're all dispensational, pre-mill, pre-trib, and we all love Israel. And we know God has a plan for him as well as his church. So in this view, basically what we see, you can see the church age, Verses 4 through 8. All these guys basically agreed that the church age has fulfillment of these verses uh, beginning in the church age. And then everything beginning in verse 9 and following is in the 70th week of Daniel. So it's chronological throughout, but it's both historic fulfillments as well as future. Here's some weaknesses. The wars in verse 6 and 7 seem to be the same wars, not different wars. Verse 6 talks about wars and rumors of wars. Verse 7 says, for an explanatory gar, which means he's given further explanation. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom will rise against kingdom. So it seems that the wars in verses 6 and 7 are the same wars, not different wars. So if you see a distinction between the wars in verse 6 and the wars in verse 7, it doesn't seem likely. It might be too speculative to argue that World War I and World War II fulfill verse 7. Um, 
while the phrases mean like total air, uh, conflict over an area in view, there's questions over whether World War One and World War Two were technically uh, extensive enough to be fulfilling these verses. Of course, World War One, the major fronts were in Europe. In World War Two, they were more widespread. Wars were not fought on every continent, uh, but they did affect every continent. There's a lot of discussion still about, is it truly a world war? But at any rate, um, the expression here, number three, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, might better be connected to the second seal in Revelation 6-4, which is the red horse and his rider. And when they are unleashed, it says that war took over the earth. So definitely a world war in the second seal. Even David L. Cooper said, here one must be very cautious and avoid dogmatism. Fourth, uh, earthquake data from the 20th century shows a slight decrease in both frequency and intensity during the 20th century. I get this from Steve Austin. I believe Steve taught here a number of years ago at the Chafer Conference. And he's a geologist, you know, creationist geologist guy. He loves rocks. People who like rocks are interesting people. <laughs> Somehow I keep running into them. Our audio video guy is a rock guy. But, um, you know, it's often stated, not always, but sometimes that what the text is saying is that there will be an increase of earthquakes as the time nears. Uh, actually, it doesn't say there will be an increase. Okay? But at any rate, the, show, the, the data shows a slight decrease. Uh, number five, it doesn't deal adequately with the birth pangs because now we're over 100 years out from World War One. I. I believe the last living survivor of World War One died in 2011. So they would not have, um, if the birth pangs began that long ago, it's probably too far ago now. Okay. And it doesn't fit well with the illustration of the fig tree because, again, those who saw World War I did not see all these things in the passage. Remember, 2434 says, this generation shall not pass away until all these things take place. So whatever generation it is that sees these things will see all these things. So if World War I was one of those things, then those are not people who are still living And 24.9 is not a good description of what will happen to Israel at the beginning of the tribulation. Notice in chapter 24, verse 9, it says, Then, and it describes Israel being hated by all nations and persecuted. So that does not begin at the beginning of the tribulation, does it? But it begins when? At the middle of the tribulation. That's when the Antichrist is indwelled by Satan and goes after Israel. So that's not a good description of the beginning, but it is a good description of the midpoint, which indicates that what comes before may be the first half. Okay, so those are all the historical futurist views, or there actually may be others, but I've seen more extensive lists. But let's move on to futurist views. Okay, the first one is a just chronological first half. So in other words, verses 4 to 14 are just describing the first half. The midpoint begins in verse 15 with the abomination of desolation and takes you to the end. So it's chronological, right? No gaps. Gabelon, Ryrie, John McLean, Ron McGawkey, others. 
let's see about this view. Some of the weaknesses. Again, usually what's stated here is Matthew 24, 9, when it talks about, then you will be hated by all nations and persecuted and so forth. That that's a reference to the fifth seal. The fifth seal in the book of Revelation, you see martyrs, their souls are under the altar. Actually, they're probably already martyred before that. The fifth seal actually seems to be the prayers that are made by those martyrs, which is fulfilled and answered later in the book of Revelation. But at any rate, it's not a good description of just martyrs in general because here in chapter 24, verse 9, the you in the context are Jewish believers who are hated and persecuted, notice it says, by the nations. So it doesn't seem to fit the... uh, Verse 9 doesn't seem to fit in the first half of the tribulation. It seems to be in the second half. Uh, Number two, the first half of the tribulation does not end in verse 14 because verse 14 is the end of the birth pangs altogether. Notice what it says at the end of verse 14. This is the end. Those are the last words of verse 14. This is the end, present tense. So whatever verse 14 is, it must be the end because Jesus said it was the end. And the end is not at the middle. The end is at the end. So that has to match up with the end of the 70th week, which is the time of the second coming immediately after. Third, the placement of the phrase, the beginning of birth pangs, would be in the wrong verse in this view. It would be more better place in verse 14 if verse 14 is the end of the first half. Okay, but really the end of the first half is the end of verse 8. So at any rate, the verse says, then the end will come, or then is the end. So that's the end of the second half, not the end of the first half. Okay, and finally, the last view, and then I'll move on from all these evaluations. Uh, Dwight Pentecost, Barbieri, Showers, Paul Enns, all held that the first half of the 70th week is described in the first four or five verses there, four through eight. And then the midpoint begins in verse 9 and takes you all the way to verse 26, but with a caveat. And the caveat is that verse 15 is a recapitulation. It takes you back and gives the defining event that marks the midpoint and is the warning sign for Jews to flee Jerusalem. Okay, So in other words, the whole tribulation then is, just, is covered in the first 14 verses, and then verse 15 takes you back to the midpoint to give Jews a warning. Here's how Dwight Pentecost said it. There seems to be evidence to support the view that the first half of the week is described in verses 4 through 8, the parallelism between verses 4 to 8 and Revelation 6, which is the seal judgments, seems to indicate that the first half of the tribulation is here described. There are indications that verses 9 to 26 describe events of the last half of the week. The abomination of desolation in 24:15 is clearly stated by Daniel 9:27 to appear in the middle of the week and to continue to the end of the period. The word then, which is a key word, in verse 9, seems to introduce the great persecutions against Israel that were promised to them and were described in Revelation 12, 12 to 17, 
where John reveals that this persecution will last for the last half of the tribulation period. And I think everybody's on board with that, right? Abomination of desolation midpoint. This is when Satan is cast out of heaven. Abomination of desolation. He fills the Antichrist and goes after Israel, right? Okay, so all I'm saying is that would be verse 9. These scholars are saying that would be verse 9, and uh, verse 15 would overlap with that. It's a recapitulation, which is common, right? You have recapitulation. You give an overall sequence, and then a backing up and giving further detail. Genesis 1, sequence. Genesis 2, go back, give details, right? Ezekiel 38, sequence. Chapter 39, go back, give details, right? So not uncommon to see a recapitulation. Okay, let's go on to the, a little bit to the argument of the Gospel of Matthew and make it as simple as possible. If there's one word that would define you know, the whole book of Matthew, you might say the word kingdom, or you might say king, one of these two words. At any rate, Jesus is indeed the king, even though the kingdom did not come. Matthew is writing to Jewish believers to help them answer the criticism of unbelieving Jews. Which criticism? Well, if Jesus is the Messiah, where's the Messiah's kingdom? You go on and on about Jesus the king, but I don't see a kingdom. Therefore, Jesus is not the king. Matthew's making the argument that no, the kingdom was offered to Israel. The king offered himself as the king. But the reason it didn't come is because Israel rejected their king. In lieu of that, there's a postponement of the kingdom. And now the king is preparing his disciples for the inner advent age. Okay, that's basically the argument of the Gospel of Matthew in a nutshell. It's organized around five discourses, right? Um, We know this from the language. You can see it every time he opens a discourse or ends a discourse. You can see that he uses a specific phrase. It marks the book off into five, well, six sections because the last section doesn't have a discourse at the end of it. It just covers the death and resurrection. But those five discourses all relate to the kingdom. That's the important idea. None of them relate to the church. The church is mentioned in the Gospel of Matthew, right? In fact, the first time it's mentioned is Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus said, I will build my church. But there's no discourses about the kingdom. I mean, about the church, sorry. All the discourses about the kingdom, excuse me. So the discourse on kingdom righteousness, that's chapters 5 through 7. I don't call it the Sermon on the Mount. Everybody calls it the Sermon on the Mount, of course. That doesn't tell me much information. It just tells me where it was given, which is not too helpful. But it's the... Discourse about the kind of righteousness the nation Israel must have in order for the kingdom to come. What type of righteousness must the nation Israel have for the kingdom to actually come? Second discourse is also about the kingdom. It's about kingdom missions. It's in chapter 10. And what Jesus lays down here is the mission that is to go out anytime the kingdom of God is at hand. So in the first century, the kingdom was at hand. But then it was no longer at hand in the book of Acts, but it will once again be at hand in the time of the 70th week of Daniel. So that's a discourse on kingdom missions that applies to the first century. It also applies to the future 70th week. In chapter 13, you have a discourse on kingdom postponement. It's called Mysteries of the Kingdom or the Mystery Concerning the Kingdom. So various mysteries, new truths revealed about the kingdom. In essence, that the kingdom will be postponed because of Israel's rejection. But one day, of course, it will be, uh, he will return and establish that kingdom. 
Notice that they're all related to the kingdom. There's nothing about the church, so there's nothing about the rapture. Okay, that's where I'm going with this, okay? This is all about Israel. It's about the kingdom. The discourse in chapter 18 is on kingdom greatness. In other words, how can the one be great in the kingdom? Essentially, you become the servant of all. That is how one becomes great in the kingdom, even slave of all. So that's a discourse again, but it's on the kingdom and how one may live in the present so that he can be great when the kingdom comes. He'd be even greater than John the Baptist. And the fifth, and our discourse of interest, is the one on what I call the discourse on kingdom coming. In other words, it's describing what events will take place in the world that will immediately precede the coming of the king in his kingdom. So these events will, of course, bring Israel to repentance. It will result in the king's return and his final judgments before the what we call messianic or millennial kingdom. The context of this discourse on kingdom coming begins really in chapter 23, right? Because this is where he issues a scathing rebuke against the Pharisees, the eight woes against the Pharisees. And then in verse 37, Jesus laments over Israel's rejection. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who killed the prophets. You know, how I wanted to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wing, but you were not willing, right? That's why the kingdom did not come. They did not receive their king. And he's lamenting over that. So Jerusalem is central. The people of Israel are central. This is setting the context for the discourse as very Israel and Jerusalem centered. In verse 38, he says, Your house is being left to you desolate. Referring to the temple, right? So Israel, Jerusalem, the temple, all of these things are setting the context for the discourse. Nothing here about the church, which he's mentioned but has not revealed in this discourse. And then finally, verse 39, he pronounces Psalm 118.26 to Israel, You will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they issue the Messianic greeting, Psalm 118.26. Again, that relates to Israel because it's what they must proclaim in order for him to return. So everything's Jerusalem, everything's Israel, everything's around the temple. Chapter 24 opens and the disciples, there's four of them, they're sitting on the Mount of Olives, right? And they're pointing out the temple buildings, right? And the beauty of Herod's design, which built upon the Hashmonean, which built upon Zerubbabel, and so forth, right? And Jesus says to them, what? I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, but they will all be cast down or destroyed, right? Talking about what? The temple. The destruction of the temple. Now, so they have some questions at this point. Two or three or sometimes people say four statements, four questions. Um, it's not germane to anything in my view, but it is germane to some people's view. And this will help uh, prepare the way a little bit for Robbie's talk. So I want to talk about the view that decides on there must be two questions. Okay. 
Some claim there must be two questions. And they say because, first of all, there's two interrogatives. When, pate, and what? A when question and a what question. When will these things happen? That's the pate question. What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? That's the T question. And some argue it's TSKS construction in this last question. Second question, but actually it's uh, not certain that it is. So there are other possibilities as far as the meaning. But one view at any rate requires two questions. The reason is because, for example, John Hart requires two questions because without it, there's not a chiasm. He wants to find a chiasm in Matthew 24. Okay. Um, his claim is that Jesus answers the two questions, the when will these things happen and the what is the sign of the coming, even the end of the age, are answered in reverse order. Okay. So they're asked in one order. They're answered in the opposite order. Okay. So he claims the first question. What's the first question? Let's just back up. First question. When? When will these things happen? Okay. He says that one is answered last. Okay. It's asked first, but it's answered last. And the second question, the what question, is asked second, but it's answered first. Okay. So here's what he claims, last bullet point here. He says, he claims that the first question is about this. When is the beginning of the day of the Lord? Yeah, this is his claim, that this is what the question is about. Okay. Let me ask you a question. Is that what prompted, is a discussion of the day of the Lord what prompted the disciples to ask, when will these things happen? What were they discussing? The temple. Not one stone being left upon another. Verse 38 of the previous chapter, your house is being left to you desolate, destruction of the temple. On their minds, as they sat on the Mount of Olives and overlooked the Temple Mount, they wanted to know when it would be destroyed. So the question was not about the beginning of the day of the Lord, which is what John Hart is claiming, but it's about when will the temple buildings be destroyed. Okay. Now this is germane to his whole position. Let me back up. This is germane to his whole position because what he wants to do, when you go down to chapter 24, verse 36, if you go to 2436, he says this is when... He's going to answer the when question. When will these things be? Meaning, in his mind, when will the day of the Lord begin? And the answer, he says, begins in verse 36 with a construction in the Greek, a peri day. Okay, now concerning. Might be a good way to translate that roughly. Now concerning. Um, this phrase is used by Paul in 1 Corinthians a lot, starting in chapter 7, verse 1. It's like when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he is responding to some questions, something that they had sent him. And so he wants to deal with those questions topically, just like any of us would if somebody sent us a list of questions. Whenever he changes questions to answer a new question, he says, Perry Day, now concerning. And it shifts to a new question. The, what happens here is Hart says, the same thing is happening here in Matthew 24, 36. Jesus is now changing topics. He's no longer going to talk about the sign of his coming. But when will the day of the Lord begin? That is the event that kicks off basically the tribulation resulting in the second coming. Um, the problem with this, first of all, is that 
Well, that wasn't what their question was about. It's not about the beginning of the day of the Lord. It's about when will the temple be destroyed. So it's not even in the right context. Okay. But he has to have this to make his case. His case is this. His case is that Jesus is introducing the day of the Lord's beginning as an imminent event. Okay, Imminent, we know what that means, right? It means it can happen at any moment. That no prophesied event must happen before it happens. And we all believe that about the rapture, right? It's an imminent event. He also believes that about the day of the Lord. Because he believes these events occur at the same time. The rapture and the day of the Lord begin or take place at the same time. It's called dual imminency. Because if you have any two events that are both imminent, they both have to happen when? At the same time. Because if they don't, they're separated in time. One has to happen before the other. And then for the second event is not imminent. Only the first one is. So that's his whole case. His whole case comes down to Jesus is using Perry Day the way Paul did in 1 Corinthians 7 and 8 and 9 and so forth. He's shifting topics. He's presenting an imminent event known as the beginning of the day of the Lord, which he must then also tie the rapture to that is also an imminent event. Problem, again, the question they were asking has nothing to do with the beginning of the day of the Lord. The question has everything to do with when will the temple be destroyed? Well, when would the temple be destroyed? (laughs) Matthew doesn't tell us, does he? The answer to the first question is not recorded in Matthew, but it is in the parallel in Luke 21, verses 12 to 24, which have no parallel in Matthew or in Mark. Alvin McLean said, It should be obvious that in this section of Luke's account, we have the answer of Christ to the disciples' question about the judgment of Jerusalem and the temple. For here he speaks especially of the events which will occupy the time from his departure to the destruction of the city in AD 70. Okay. So Luke records that. Matthew doesn't. Some people think that's problematic. Let's go to the second question. Second question is, what is the sign of his coming? Now, there's a passage in the Old Testament that seems to perhaps indicate what it will be like when you have the sign of his coming. Zechariah 14, 6 and 7. Speaking of the day of his coming to earth to rescue and deliver Israel, establish his kingdom. In that day there will be no light, so it's a complete blackout. The luminaries will dwindle. It will be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But it will come about that at evening time there will be light. So the question is, well, is the sign related to some light? That sounds a lot like Matthew 24, 29, and 30. The cosmic background of blackness and then a sign the people or tribes mourn and then they see the Son of Man coming. The second question. Now, the disciples ask here about the sign of his coming. It's a very definite question. The parousia they have in mind is his coming to earth uh, to usher in the kingdom, right? Bring in the messianic age, okay? It does not refer to a broader period like the day of the Lord or the entire 70th week or something like that. So their question is a very precise one. They want to know what is the sign that he is coming back to earth at that moment. That is really what their question there is about. And the third question, which I see basically is no different really than the second question because they're linked. They're tied together. 
But the question is, and the end of the age. Okay, and the end of the age. The sign of your coming and the end of the age. Now, in Jewish thinking, there are two basic ages, right? You have the age leading up to Messiah, and then you have the Messianic age. So they want to know what's the end of this age that precedes the Messianic age. That's all they want to know. But again, that's tied to the second question, right? What's the sign of your coming? Because, well, that's what ends the present age. That's what ushers in the Messianic age. So it's not much different than the second question. So the end of the age is related to the second coming. And Jesus is going to refer to the end several times in the discourse. Verse 6, he says, this is not the end. In verse 13, he says, he who endures to the end, the end will be saved. In verse 14, he mentions at the very end, this is the end. So that all relates to to the second coming. Second coming is not in verse 6. He who makes it to the second coming, verse 13, will be saved. And the end is in verse 14. That must be the end of the tribulation time. It must be the time that he's about to come. Okay, what did the disciples really want to know? What are they thinking? They're thinking in terms of Zechariah, okay, and his second coming, and they want to understand the destruction of the temple in that context. The meaning of the three questions, what they really wanted to know is this. What is the relationship in time between the destruction of the buildings, temple buildings, the sign of your coming, which is the end of the age? What is their relationship in time? Do these all happen together? Is that what you're saying? Now, Matthew, again, he doesn't record Jesus' answer to the first question, right? But we said Luke does. We quoted some of that from Alvin McLean. I'm not sure entirely why Matthew did not record the answer, but he did record the question, but he did. Okay, Maybe Matthew didn't record the answer because they're not all related in time. The temple was going to be destroyed in the near time frame, whereas the second coming and the end of the age would happen in a far time frame. Or maybe Matthew didn't record it because it wasn't germane to the argument of his book. I think we have to think about that when we're studying texts, when we're studying books. We're trying to understand what is the argument of the author. Why did Luke include this, but Matthew did not? Well, obviously because Matthew did not find it to be germane to his argument, whereas Luke did. So all these details are important as we study a book. It doesn't mean they're out of harmony. It just means that the two authors are trying to accomplish two different things. And therefore some cite one thing and others don't. And vice versa, right? So Matthew didn't find it germane, perhaps, to his argument to bring up that the destruction of the temple would happen in the near time frame. He really wanted to deal with the conditions on earth that would result in his coming to deliver Israel. That's what Israel's, I mean, Matthew's about. It's about the kingdom, the establishment, uh, reestablishment of the nation Israel in the land. Okay, so. Let's back off now, and I just want to, what I want to do now is just go through how I came to the conclusions that I claim, came to about the meaning of really verses 4 through 14, but then a little bit about things uh, closer to the end of my section. I'm quoting here from Paul Enns because he holds a similar view to myself and Pentecost and others. But he says it really well. In 24, 4 through 8, Jesus describes signs in the first half of the tribulation 
He says these are not signs for the church since the church will be raptured prior to the tribulation. He says these signs parallel Revelation 6, the seals, right? In the second half of the tribulation, verses 9 to 14, suffering will intensify. Then, verse 9 marks a transition, referring to the occasion when the Antichrist breaks the covenant with Israel and persecutes the nation. Then Matthew 24, 15 through 26, amplifies the period discussed in verses 9 through 14. In those verses, Jesus foretold many signs. Now he singles out one sign, the abomination of desolation. That's really the sign for Israel to flee. It's not the sign of the second coming, right? It's really only one time that the Lord uses sign in this, and it's way down in verse 30. So he understood their question, and he's, he's definitely going to answer it, okay? All right. First half of the 70th week. Let's go through these verses. Verse 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. There are seven basic arguments that show that verses 4 through 8 are the first half of the tribulation, okay? This verb deceive, which is the Greek word planao, sometimes translated mislead in your version, binds this unit together, okay? Verses 4 through 28 are a single unit dealing with the key characteristic of the 70th week of Daniel, and that key characteristic is deception, okay? In other words, what I'm saying here is you cannot say that part of this is in the church age because that verb deceive is using, would then be used in the church age in the same way it's being used in the tribulation. And these ages are not the same. Gabalon even said, you have, he said, the nature of the deception in the 70th week of Daniel is on a scale far larger than any kind of deception we have in the church age. So the use of that verb binds this whole section together because it's used in verse 4, it's used in verse 5, it's used in verse 11, it's used in verse 24. Whatever time period is being viewed here, it's all one period of deception. Also, verse 2, the references to false Christ binds this section together because false Christ is referred to in verse 5. And then later, where everybody agrees it's the second half, in verses 23 and 24. It's a multiplicity of Christ. They're all coming in the same time, in the same generation, in the same time frame. So not like one here and one there, but all together. Third, you notice in these verses, wars and rumors of wars and nation rising against nation, in these verses, verse 6 and 7, correspond to the second seal wars in Revelation 6, 3 and 4. That's the red horse. That's when you know, it goes forth to slaughter. So there's no question that's a worldwide scale conflagration under the second seal, so it's fitting nicely. And lots of lots of people have seen this, right? John McLean, I believe, wrote his dissertation on this. Uh, it's in portion of it is in When the Trumpet Sounds, if you want to read that. Um, Robert Thomas covers this in his commentary on Revelation one through seven. Okay, verse 4, or number 4, uh, famines and earthquakes in 24-7 correspond to famines and earthquakes in Revelation 6-8, famines, fourth seal, and earthquakes, sixth seal, verses 12 to 17. So if you can link those together with the seals, you know, I think you're on firm ground. That's all I'm saying. You're on firm ground because you have linkages there that are quite clear contextually. Fifth reason, the entire 70th week must be described in verses 4 to 14 because verse 6, it says, not the end. What did the disciples ask? When is the end? He says, verse 6, not the end. But he says in verse 14, 
It is the end. So the whole thing must be covered by the time you get to verse 14. Number six, the birth pangs occur in the 70th week. They don't occur throughout the church age. Remember, birth pangs occur just as a woman's going to give birth. And what happens is they come upon her, and then they become closer and closer together as well as more intense until the baby is born. I saw it happen four times. I got five kids out of it. I passed out most of those times. I was like the guy in Jeremiah, trembling, you know, my knees shaking. I don't do well with that stuff. I'm getting better. Birth pangs occur right at the end, okay? And Randall Price described them this way in his word studies related to all the words in the 70th week. He said, The involuntary and uncontrollable nature of birth pangs, as well as their intensification leading ultimately to a time of deliverance, well picture the concept of a time of divine judgment that must run its course until the promise of new life could be experienced. In other words, once they begin, they're going to get closer and closer together, and then finally it will give birth to the kingdom. Think seals. Trumpets, bowls. And that's exactly what you see. The birth pangs. And number seven, evidence for the first half in verses four through eight. All these things must take place in one generation. Matthew twenty four thirty four. Also the illustration of the fig tree. This binds all the events of verses four to eight to the same generation that will see the events of 24, 9 through 31. Okay. Second half, quickly. In verse 9, this is a key word, the word then. Tate. Tate signifies a succession in time, something that follows quickly on the heels of. That is what the word tate means. It's actually used many times in this discourse. I'll show you some others later. Signifying a succession in time. So verse 9 is a transition to things that will take place after the beginning of the birth pangs. So the birth pangs are already in process, but then something will happen in the midst of the birth pangs. And verse 9 is describing those things. So verse 9 describes the believing remnant of Israel. Okay, They are at the midpoint, and the you is them Okay, in verse 9. So they will be delivered over to tribulation, and they will be killed, and they will be hated by all nations because of Jesus' name. So this is the believing Jewish remnant at the midpoint. Satan is, of course, cast out of heaven, right? He comes to indwell the Antichrist. The Antichrist goes after them to destroy the believing Jewish remnant. The Lord protects them and watches over them in the midst of the second half so that he may come and retrieve them or deliver them at the end. By the way, this verse, verse 9, is the verse that pre-wrath people bring the church into the discourse. They want to say it's the church that is still here that is being persecuted in verse 9. Okay, But you is the disciples. Uh, the Lord is addressing the faithful remnant through his believing disciples. So he's addressing the future faithful remnant of Israel through his believing disciples. It's not all people. It's not the church. It is Israel in specific. Notice they are hated by all the nations. That's a key, right? And it's because of Jesus' name, because these Jews have believed in Jesus. Things that quickly follow that, verse 10, there will be betrayal among the Jewish people because some Jews are going to believe that the lawless one is the end is the Christ. Others are going to believe that Jesus is the Christ. So there's going to be division among Jewish people. 
The betrayal among Jewish people is going to be in the second half, right? Not in the first half. It happens in the second half. Also, verse 11 describes false prophets. And this is parallel to Zechariah 13, which is definitely in the second half. It says, It will come about in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land. They will no longer be remembered. I will also remember the prophets, remove the prophets, and the unclean spirit from the land. And if anyone still prophesies, then his father and mother who gave birth to him will say to him, You shall not live, for you have spoken falsely in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who gave birth to him will pierce him through when he prophesies. Now, no Jewish father and mother would do that unless uh, they were dedicated to the Lord. And their son was definitely uh, claiming to be a prophet and he was not. So there's going to be division among the people of Israel. And if one is a false prophet, then they'll be uh, executed during that time. Second half. Number five, verse 12 describes the period as one of lawlessness. Remember, the Antichrist is a man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2 because he'll make changes to laws and seasons and times for the Jewish people. That happens in the second half, begins at the midpoint. It's not the first half. Verses 13 and 14 then speak of events right before the end of the 70th week. Again, he who survives to the end, uh, perseveres to the end, will be saved. It's actually talking to uh, Jewish believers who persevere in love because their love will grow cold. So if a Jew is able to maintain his love for his fellow brethren, then uh, he will survive to the end and he will be rescued by Messiah. And then verse 14, it says it's the end. So that's the end of the second half. It has to be. There's no other end. 2415, what's that? Well, it's the midpoint. And this verse is really the verse that gives you the overall structure. Everything is structured around Daniel 927, right? Everything in the whole passage, basically all of the discourse is basically an expansion of Daniel 9.27. We know this is the midpoint, the abomination of desolation, spoken by Daniel the prophet. It's not a sign of the second coming, but it's a sign to Jews in the land that, hey, it's time to get out of town. So they will flee as they were warned what would happen in verse 9. The nations will hate them and persecute them, so they will need to escape. The only sign of the second coming is actually in verse 30, against which you have the backdrop in verse 29, also in Zechariah 14, the cosmic blackout. Okay, so those are all the historical future views. I went through all those futurist views. I think this last view is the most consistent view with the text, with the context, the overall view of the book of Matthew, what Matthew is trying to accomplish. So let me just summarize. How long have I been going anyway? Do we have, how much, do we have plenty of time? Okay. For questions? Oh, I'm almost done, so. Okay, good. Summary, then. The overall argument of Matthew must be kept in mind when you come to uh, the Olivet Discourse. All the discourses relate to the kingdom in some way. The Olivet Discourse relates to events immediately preceding the coming of the king in his kingdom. Jesus was lamenting the fact that that generation of Israel rejected And he pronounced judgment on the temple. He announced he would not return until the nation welcomes him back, right? The disciples asked him about the timing of the destruction of the temple buildings in relation to the sign of his coming and the end of the age. Jesus' answer was that the temple buildings would be destroyed in the near time frame. That's over in Luke, not mentioned in Matthew. 
And the sign of his coming in the end of the age would occur in a far time frame with all the characteristics of verses 4 to 31. In other words, all those things are contained in a compact time period, one generation. The far time frame is held together by a verbal usage of the word deception, uh, the usage of false Christ throughout, illustration of the fig tree, uh, and the statement that the generation that sees all these things will not pass away until all these things takes place. That puts everything in one season, which season I call the 70th week of Daniel. Description of wars, famines, earthquakes are most likely linked to the events of the first half of the 70th week, seals, seal judgments, then events of the 20th century. Therefore, the first half of the 70th week could be described in verses 4 through 8. We might call these the beginning of birth pangs. Verse 9 is the word then. That transitions to second half. That's when the nations of the world will hate the Jewish remnant, will deliver them to tribulation and death. The identity of the Messiah will cause division in the nation and false prophets will abound, leading many to be deceived. An increase in lawlessness under the policies of the Antichrist will cause the love of most Jews to grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be rescued. The mention of the end signifies the end of the 70th week. That's verse 14. Verse 15 recapitulates the events of the second half. Showing the abomination of desolation is the event that will initiate the persecution of the Jewish remnant described earlier in verse 9. The conclusion is basically that there are no signs in Matthew 24 that describe events in the church age which may, let's say, precede the rapture. Okay, And that there's really one sign before the second coming. And that is in verse 30. Notice in verse 30, it says, well, verse 29, notice it's a blackout, cosmic blackout. Verse 30, then, tate, there it is again, succession of events, it follows. Then the sign of the Son of Man. By the way, Son of Man is a title of Messiah that originates where? Daniel 7, which is a passage related to the kingdom him receiving a kingdom. It's a title related to Israel, not related to the church. Okay, It's related to Israel and the establishment of the kingdom for Israel. So then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then, it says, the tribes of the earth will mourn, the tribes of the land, perhaps. Then they will see the coming of the Son of Man. So what is the sign? Well, that's, that's a good question. Uh, we know this. If it's not composed of light, well, you can't see it because everything's black. (laughs) So it has to relate to light. Perhaps it's Shekinah glory. If Shekinah introduced the first advent, perhaps he will also introduce the second advent. It's also distinct from the coming of the Son of Man because in the progression of the verse, it happens before they see him coming. So the the sign is not him himself, but it's something that precedes him uh, very shortly in time. And they know and understand, and they mourn. I would say one more thing, and that's if we went to Luke 17, uh, verse 21. Robbie, I'm going to steal your Bible real quick. Is this the authorized version? Luke 17. I think this is uh, pertinent. I think this is a difficult passage uh, that people struggle with. Verse 20, 
Yeah, verse 20. The Pharisees asking questions about the kingdom of God and when it's coming, which is related to our context in Matthew 24. So having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is, for, behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Some say in within you, right? Some translations. Obviously not within the Pharisees. Uh, Lord, let's hope not. Um, what does this mean uh, in your midst? Some would say, well, it's uh, in the king himself. That's kind of like a progressive dispensational view. You know, the king was there because the king was there. Okay, and they want to get a progression idea of the kingdom. No, because he explains what he means in the following verses. So let's look at it. Verse 22, the days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man. You will not see it. They will say to you, look, there, there he is. Look here. Don't go away. Do not run after them. Why? For just like the lightning when it flashes out of one part of the sky shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. So how long is it going to take for the kingdom of God to come? As long as it takes for a bolt of lightning to go from one side of the sky to the other. In other words, it will be in their midst because it will be there like that. That is what he's talking about in Matthew 24, verse 30. It's going to happen very rapidly. This is not going to be like coming in gradually like you watch a plane land or something. It's going to happen like that. It will just be in their midst. That is what Jesus is teaching. Okay, anyway, so the sign of that will be just briefly before that, and then he will be here. Okay, time for any questions, comments, and hopefully no snide remarks. You want these? All right, first question is from Dr. Eisen. By the way, has a new book on the Olivet Discourse out that came out last fall, right? Okay. Great. Why didn't you call me? I'm supposed to read this ahead of time. We'll talk about that later. Not that we disagree. Okay. I don't have a question. I have a comment. Stan Toussaint shifted his view. Oh, yeah. Uh, toward the end of his life as a result of coming to the preacher study group to the view you you advocate or that we advocate. Yeah, if you want, he's saying that um, Toussaint changed his view. If you want to see that, it, Benson uh, wrote the uh, paper and included the chart that you gave me years ago, which show right. his yeah. handwritten yeah. marks. Yeah, clearly Stan shifted. Yeah. And the, they're going... His doctoral dissertation, to doctoral dissertation, was a commentary on Matthew, where he had the view that you referred to, which obviously makes sense because you're quoting from his commentary. Right. But he was just saying right. uh, that he shifted his view right. uh, as a result of coming to pre-trip study group and these presentations. Yeah, he, you can look at. The, I have the evidence in the paper if you want to see that he changed views. It's all good. Behold, the king was the older view. Any other questions over here? Where? Oh. I was at a a church service a couple weeks ago, and they were teaching on a prophecy update. And the pastor was saying that as the signs 
intensified together, like with the birth pangs, mm-hmm. like, oh, there was uh, the variants from COVID-19, and then the R- Russians are invading, so all these things, war- wars and rumors, rumors of wars. That person's basically saying it's happening during the church age, which is false, right? right. Well, I mean, I think, I think so. I think that, you know, this is a natural course of things. I mean, you want to go back and talk about all sorts of viruses and things that have happened through history, pestilence. I mean, you know, it's not... We have this, I, I get it, but it's not like, well, they had the Spanish flu in 1917. So, you know, that was pretty bad, too. So that didn't mean it was the end of the world. And Jeremy? Yeah. You quoted from, uh, I think, Luke 17, was that 30? 20, right there? 20 through 23 or so. 23, okay. Uh, looking at, at Luke 17, <coughs> 31, we've got the, the runaway and, and don't bother to go downstairs and that seems right. to correspond with Matthew twenty four seventeen run away and, and don't go downstairs. So how how should we understand the, the day that the Son of Man is revealed? Yeah, well I agree that that's parallel to certain things in Matthew twenty four, Luke twenty one, Mark Mark's parallel. So these are things that are happening basically around the midpoint when Israel's gonna have to flee. So yeah, what's the I'm not sure. So then in Matthew 24, it's when you see the abomination of desolation run away. Luke, it's when on the same day that the Son of Man is revealed, run away. So what's the relationship to desolation of abomination and the revelation of the Son of Man? I'm not teaching Luke 1730. 29. Um, no, yeah, we'll just talk about it later, um, and we'll I'll look through it. So it's not. Oops, sorry. Other questions? This will be the last question. Thanks. Just a clarification uh, in, the, in the Greek. Okay. Uh, nation will rise against nation. Is that ethnos? Um, I read it this morning. I read it this morning. Yes. Yes. And it, it's I, I call it coalitions of nations against coalitions of nations. And I lump those in with the second seal in Revelation 6, 3 and 4. Yeah, not that. We wouldn't. Yeah. I mean, you can do the word study on ethnos and Ghanaia and all these other words. and The only thing I would add to some of this discussion is that these are signs of his coming. That means there's something extremely significant about these wars, rumors of wars, the famines, the pestilence, all of these things. We've had all of those things all through history. So there's something distinctive about the wars and the pestilence and these things because they're, they're so different. And you have two or three passages in the Old Testament, as well as here in Matthew, that say there's nothing like this in, has ever happened in the history of the world or ever will again. So these are going to be world wars and famines and pestilence on an, on an order that we can't quite grasp. And that's why they are signs. It's my view. Yeah, I would, okay. I would, I would say, I would just add on that. When you look at the fig tree, which I guess you'll do that, but um, he says, 
when you when its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. In other words, it's a sign for the Jews. So he says, when you see all these things, that is everything in chapter 24, 4 to 30 uh, or so. When you see all these, recognize he's near right at the door. Okay, so all this, all of them are important and need to be a tip-off to Israel at that time, right? Right. Good. Good, Good, Good. job, Jeremy. Good. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Okay, we're... <clears throat> When does the schedule? Okay, when? Okay, we come back at three ten, so we'll come back at that's twenty minutes from now. So we're not too badly off, maybe five minutes or so, but um, uh, and uh, so we'll do that. So let's take a break, come back in about twenty minutes, and we'll get started on the on my paper.